today was fired after having an opera commissioned and premiered at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. But that opened the door for him to pursue other opportunities that he had been putting on the side. He has made a name for himself as a copywriter. What is a copywriter? Well, we're going to talk about that. But before we do that, let's welcome to the show Dr. Douglas Pugh. Welcome. Hey there. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and the way that should I should I call you Doctor or just no, Doug? No, just, just call me Doug. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, the way that Doug and I met is we uh, we both subscribed to um, a fellow by the name of Ben Settle. He is a great, I guess you'd call him a copywriter, but he publishes a monthly newsletter called Email Players. He specializes in email, and so we both sub- subscribe to Email Players, and Ben Settle mentioned Doug in a recent email. That's when I heard about the story about opera getting fired. I, I can't wait to hear this story, but first of all, I have to I have to know, I didn't realize that operas were still being written. There's a whole thing happening with opera, especially last 10, 15 years. A lot of people getting very, very excited about writing operas. Really? It's a, it's a difficult area. I mean, the distance from, you know, graduating with your doctorate from a good music school and actually getting a, an opera on the big stage. It's a, it's a chasm. It's a pretty wide chasm, but the last 10, 15 years, a lot of programs have popped up to try to, uh, you know, bridge that distance a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the, the first one that was had kind of a big impact was one that I got involved in back in goodness, 2012, was when that started. I was finishing up my postdoc in Poland as a Fulbrighter, and the Kennedy Center had some money, and they wanted to put together a, a mentoring program for young opera teams, composer librettist teams. And so, a friend of mine who's also a Fulbrighter in Poland, she's a she's a poet and a playwright and a film director and a, just a fantastic, multi-talented person. Said, "Hey, let's." Let's try to write an opera. There's this thing at the Kennedy. Let's let's apply. And we got one of the three spots, um, and we got mentored by some really big names: Jake Hagee, Mark Campbell. Um, like this is the top of the heap kind of thing. It's like making a short film and having Steven Spielberg sit next to you while you're working on it. Is that okay. that kind of thing? <clears throat> and, uh, and then it was sort of a competition. It was like, okay, the three teams are each going to write a 20 minute opera scene, and then it's going to be performed at the Kennedy Center. And then one of the teams will win the opportunity to compose an hour-long opera. And our team won. And then so then we got the commission to write our opera, Penny. Um, but that was the first of several programs that have now popped up over the last 10 years or so. And it's every year they do this still. It's called the, uh, I forget what it's called, American Opera Initiative, something like that. So yeah, there's there are a handful of programs out there it's still very difficult because you know opera is just so expensive just just getting a regular opera up it's just ridiculously expensive um so with that comes all sorts of difficulties hence the difficulty of trying to write an opera but that's also kind of the thing it's like it's an everest kind of a thing like gosh if i can write an opera and make a name for myself with an opera that's pretty big deal so it's enticing so who listens like who goes to see operas because it's not it's not like uh, in Mozart's time with that's all you could that that was like going to the theater back in the day. Exactly, that was like going to see Top Gun. You know, go see Magic Flute with Tom Tom Cruise with a powdered wig, kind of thing. Um, no, there's uh, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of young people now going to this new hip kind of opera. Um, there's there's sort of several groups of opera fans. You know. In fact, this coming week, uh, John Adams, who's like the big granddaddy American composer, is like the Aaron Copeland of today. He's premiering a new opera at the San Francisco Opera. It's running for like a month and a half. Uh, and they have a very big opera community out there. There's new operas being premiered at the Met just about every year now. Um, and there's a whole sort of fringe opera scene going on in new music circles. 
So okay. enough people are still interested that things are happening. And what what is the what what do you think is the appeal of opera to a modern audience? <laughs> All the senses. Hmm. To be able to see and follow and hear and feel and you know the 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 staging and the story and uh, I mean there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Yeah. Um, with opera, which is actually kind of part of the fun. It's like this, the, the knife's edge. Can we actually do this tightrope walk and not die? Um, <laughs> but also convince the audience. Like, can you really convince an audience that they need to sit in the theater and listen to you sing that long? Can your story keep them enticed? You know, that's that was why I really liked the challenge as a composer. Can I keep them? Now our opera was an hour, not three. So that's a little different, but can the story be strong enough and the music engaging enough that they're on the edge of their seat the whole time. And then when the end comes, they're like, what it's already over. Like that was our goal the whole time. And we managed to do it, but it was a real team effort of story and music. I couldn't have done it without my, my partner in crime. She wrote a great story that helped it a lot. What are the major components of an opera? You have music, you have uh, a story. Got to have the story. Then you have to turn the story into a libretto, which if that term's not familiar to everybody listening, a libretto is basically the book or it's like the the formal term for lyrics. Okay. You know, when, some, when the, the composer and book writer and lyricist wrote Frozen, they did the same thing. My brother was in the cast of frozen on broadway he was in the opening cast so he got to know these writers they had this exact same process that we did they just used different terminology so they come up with the story and then somebody turns the story into a book and then someone turns the book into lyrics and then the composer writes the songs and the music with a with an opera one person does the story the book and the lyrics and one person does the music so the, oh, wow. the one is the, the librettist does the story the book, the lyrics, the whole thing. And it's even more difficult if it's an original story, which ours was. Right. Completely new story that she came up with. <clears throat> so those are the two main components. But then just depending on what the story requires, you have the cast, you have, is this individual singers? Is there a chorus? Is there an orchestra? Is there a chamber orchestra? Is there a stage band? Uh, staging. And, you know, it can go all over the place. Jake Hagee, my mentor, he wrote an opera on Moby Dick. And so the set was enormous. It was the side of a ship with all kinds of crazy effects and lighting to make it look like the ocean. That's a very popular opera that's getting performed all over the world. So, yeah, there's, it's a huge undertaking. And so the spectacle is one of the reasons people love opera. Mm. Um, still, it's just there's there's just nothing quite like it. It's the meeting of so many art forms hmm. in one place, and you know, thankfully, Tom Cruise was very wise and added Turandot from Puccini's opera, um, Puccini's opera Turandot, in one of the Mission Impossible films that opened up to a, a, a wider audience. That hey, opera is this cool thing, and then in a James Bond film, there was they were at the opera. In um, Quantum of Solace, he, James Bond is watching Tosca. They seem to always pick Puccini operas for some reason. Anyway, so there's a bit of fun with, with pop culture and, and opera sometimes, too. What is the difference between a musical like uh, Wicked, for example? What was what, How would you describe the difference between that and an opera? Yeah, musical theater and opera, they're very close. Okay. The main difference is in opera there's usually no spoken dialogue. Mm -hmm. Everything is sung. Right. That's the main difference. There's so many different degrees of operas and operettas and musicals and music dramas. We'd be here for a long time to decipher all of them, but that's the main difference. Okay, so the main difference is no, no dial spoken dialogue. Everything is sung. Mm-hmm. That's a challenge as a writer, you know, and you, and you can't do it like Handel anymore. You know, Handel would have these recitatives where the harpsichord just rolls a chord, vroom, and it came to pass that I came to this podcast, vroom, and saw this guy playing the trumpet, vroom. That's like the, the dialogue, right? It's not songs. Then they would go into the songs. So there's a real cut and dry difference between recitative or dialogue and arias or songs, where in today's opera, we don't want to write in that style. We want to write in a modern style that's very free form. Yet there still has to be enough difference between what is the dialogue and what are the 
emotional moments. Like in a musical, you know, Anna and Elsa back to Frozen, they're talking about their parents and whatever. But then there comes a moment when talking doesn't help anymore and we have to sing, right? We burst out into song. Well, you still want to have that similar kind of thing happen in opera, but it's fuzzier because you're also singing the dialogue. So how do you write engaging dialogue music and engaging dialogue singing that will then want to burst into bigger songs that are like the Frozen songs or the, right. the art? That's a tricky balance. Very tricky. Well, it seems to me like the the spoken dialogue of the of the movie or the the musical that has a rhythm of its own. Oh, absolutely. That was one of my first huge lessons with opera is getting that pacing right. That's such a difficult pacing. Almost everything is faster than you think it should be, like way faster. That That's what Jake Hagee, my mentor, was like jumping all over me. I was lucky enough to have three or four workshops with the singers at the Washington National Opera Kennedy Center in the same room. And Jake's sitting right next to me. We're looking at my score rehearsing the thing he's like stop everybody stop that's three times too slow speed it up it's like oh my gosh wow so just the the dynamic of pacing that is a huge one the dialogue pacing has to be much faster and then the aria pacing that's when we're like in ourselves and we can open up and and have a moment like a musical does but the dialogue so to write music that is engaging and interesting and keeps me wanting to listen yet is quick paced enough and fast enough to carry dialogue in a real time way super tricky balance and then in english you know english is not the prettiest language and we're it's so filled with short clipped quick chirping little syllables um it's it's difficult to to write in english although some things um once you once you hear it go oh that's impossible to stretch that word out like the word the you just can't stretch that word out and make it pretty while in spanish or in italian la i mean the word the is la so <laughs> you can stretch that out all day long right so learning the to how to find the hidden legatos inside of english and and kind of almost like dynamic levels of legato like okay legato 0.5 legato 0.6 legato point like how much legato can i get out of that word versus this word versus this word and then in a phrase it's a lot of calculated work needs a lot live rehearsal time to just hear things out loud with real singers because it's always different in your head than it is in person so we we were very lucky to have like i think five total workshops um three or four of them with our mentors uh, anyway, but this just would have been impossible without without workshops. Oh, okay, so um, we have the oratorio. The c- trumpet players will know the trumpet shell sound, right? From Masada. oh yeah, okay. So, um, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. yes, 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 yes. But right yes. before that, you have the 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 bass singing. Behold, I tell you a mystery, mystery. Mm-hmm. and so that is the recitative. Recitative, recitative, mm-hmm. and then that Which goes in recited or dialogue. Okay, and then that goes into the actual song, which is the aria? The aria, correct. Okay, so I'm learning all these these uh, vocal terms. Good. Well, I'm glad you bring up Handel because there's actually a third dimension there. He has two types of recitatives. He has recitative secco, or dry, and a recitative accompagnato, which is accompanied recitative. So if in Handel's Messiah, since you brought that up, the earlier in the, in the first when the angel appears to announce that Jesus is going to be born, you get all three of those. You get first the secco. So that's like the driest possible. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, from, from, just like dry chords with pretty straight ahead lyrics. But then the strings come in. It's not quite an aria yet. But the recitative has turned more lyrical, and it's dialogue that's a little bit more lyrical. But it's this in-between zone between dry recitative and full-on aria. Unto you, born this day, the city of David, whose Savior, which is Christ the 
So that's actually the space that I live in when I'm writing in dialogue is that kind of in between because it needs to be dialogue, but it also needs to be music because I don't want dry. I don't want dry recitative. It's okay. too old. What, what was the song that you mentioned that you're just talking about in Messiah? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. Okay, let's see. It's in the first part. It's in Isaiah. Well, if you can't think of it, it's okay. I'm just, I was just going to listen no, to it. And- it's right before glory to God. See, this is all leaning up because glory to God ends part one, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And right before it, you know, the angel appears to the shepherds. Oh, there were shepherds abiding in the field. That's where it is. Keeping watch over their flocks by night. And then the uh, accompagnato begins. Um, and lo, the angel of the Lord. Yeah, that's the accompagnato. And then the choir comes in in the place where the where the aria would go. Because you can replace an aria with a chorus. Because the chorus is just basically an aria for everybody. Glory to God. They come in and they sort of as the answer to the question that the recitatives presented. Okay, so we have the wretched, wretched, wretched the wretched Tatum. <laughs> That's right. We usually you can abbreviate and say wretched. We always say wretched. All right, so we have the recitative before glory to God. I'm I'm just going to listen to this so I can yeah. understand what you're talking about. So we have two tip separate types. We have secco. You said secco dry wretched. S-E-C-C-O? Correct. And then accompanietto. Accompanietto or accompanied. Accompanietto. We've got a subject matter expert setting us all straight on the correct pronunciation. (laughs) 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 All right. So uh, you write only in English, no other language, just English. Uh, Opera, yes. But I've written... Plenty of choral music in Latin and in Spanish. Yeah, when I was a Fulbrighter in Poland, um, my, my teacher at the Chopin University, he's also the music director at the cathedral downtown. So I was his assistant conductor that year, and I, I composed a large mass as my dissertation for their choir. And so it was all in Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I've written quite a bit in Latin. All right, I, this is this is really fascinating stuff, and you've given me some homework to to <laughs> edu- educate myself on opera. Yeah, but I want to get into the story of how, like, what job did you have, and how did having an opera commission lead to you losing that job? So I was a professor of music in the Cincinnati area, and you know I knew the opera was coming, and it was a big deal. I mean, when when a professor gets a commission like that, that's a that's awesome. You know, that's, that's props for the school props for their, for whatever, you know? So, okay. They, I was working on this thing for almost two years. They knew the premiere was coming. I had to take two weeks off, had all my classes covered. Uh, all my kids were super excited. Not, not my kids, like my children. Cause I have a lot of those too, but all my students were very excited. And so I went away for two weeks, everything was covered. And I come back and about a week later, the department chair calls me and says, uh, we're going to ask you to not come back in the fall. Oh, really? What's what's wrong? Did something happen? Did I do something? Well, we had some complaints that you were gone too long. Really? Everyone seems really excited for me. I haven't heard any complaints. Who's who's complaining? How or how many? Are, well, one student. I'm like, oh, one student's complaining, and you're going to fire me for that? Well, they're questioning how their tuition dollars are being spent and and wasted and that that. I'm like. That's really it. You're going to fire me because one student's complaining about that. I mean, I just got your name in the Washington Post. I got our school's name in a national paper. Sorry, we're going to ask you to not come back. That's all the explanation I got. That was a that was a real kick in the cojones. I mean, looking back now, I'm quite glad that it's happened because it's taken me to some other places that I'm very, very happy about. And honestly, I was getting very sick of academia. I mean, I I enjoy school. I love teaching. Honestly, I think my number one gift in life is teaching. Um, But I felt so dishonest. I I mean, I was married. I'm still married. I had three kids at the time. We have six now. And we were on food stamps. I mean, I had a doctorate from a top 10 conservatory in the United States, a postdoctorate from one of the best schools in Europe, a commission from the John F. Kennedy Center, and we're on bloody food stamps. 
there's something wrong with that. And here I am in class every day telling these freshmen and sophomore, hey, do your homework. So someday you can be on food stamps like me. You know, I just was not, I was feeling kind of icky about the whole thing. So looking back, I'm really quite glad that I got the can. Turns out months later, I found out the real reason. A friend of mine, um, <coughs> excuse me, on the faculty replaced this person as the department chair. And he told me, he called me up. Was like, I found out what really happened. This guy, who's also a composer, the guy who fired me, he was being voted out of his department chairship. And he was a tenured professor. I was not tenured. Um, and so he needed class. They couldn't fire him because he's tenured, but he needed to revert back to being a full-time teacher. So the classes that he was te- that he needed to teach were the classes that I was teaching. So he got rid of me so he could fill those slots. It would have been nice if he just said that. You know, it would have. Um, I would have completely understood that. Right. Stuff like that happens. And it's, but instead, just giving me this like nonsense answer, the next two, because I had to finish the semester, and those were the most awkward two months of my life. Nobody would on the faculty would look at me. They'd, they'd turn around and walk the other direction in the hall. Like it was so strange. And I'm not usually a jerk. I don't think. I mean, I'm generally a nice person, but I don't know. It was awkward. Ugh. Bad taste in my mouth still. And when was this? In the 2015. But since then, you've been rather active. And uh, according to your bio, there's this fellow named Ray Edwards, who if you're at all familiar with uh, internet marketing, he's pretty well known as a copywriter himself. We've already mentioned another great copywriter, but Ray, man, he's up there. Yes, he uh, is. How, how did you get hooked up with him and like be his? It sounds like you've you've actually done some work, like shadow writing for him. I was his copywriter for almost two years, and <clears throat> we started creating products together and launching them to his list. Excuse me. Um. So when I got fired, twenty fifteen, I wasn't sure what to do with myself. My brother in law offered me a very generous but kind of pity job which I took because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and he runs an e-com company here in Utah, sells hundreds of thousands of different SKUs on Amazon. And so I joined the marketing team of one and started learning marketing by buying books and courses and stuff. And one of the first um, books I saw was this guy, Jeff Walker, his book, Launch. So I got that, I devoured it. And in the book, he talked about this thing called copywriting which not circle C copywriting, like, you know, intellectual property, but the art of selling in print to the masses where you can write one letter or one web page and bring thousands of people to it and sell with just one piece of sales copy. It's like, Oh, interesting. What is this? And he mentioned this guy, Ray Edwards in the book. So I looked on Amazon and Ray had a book, how to write copy that sells. It's an excellent book on copywriting. So I got that. And that was the start. I went way down the rabbit hole, um, got his course. He mentioned Ben Settle in that book. And so I got Ben Settle's list. I've been a massive Ben Settle fan since, gosh, that was like December 2015 or something. Um, so I started writing emails and getting good at email copy. Our sales were going up for my emails. I was helping my wife's business with emails. Ben Settle style personality, lots of fun, none of this corporate BS kind of emails, just like a lot of personality, a lot of fun, engaging, stand out in the inbox kind of thing. Um, and it was working. It's like, wow, this is really cool. So I um, <laughs> I had a bit of a detour. I thought I was going to go back into music. This publishing company in the church I belong to, and I'm very active in my church music, uh, was up for sale. And I knew the owner because I was published by this company. And he calls me up and says, hey, do you want to buy the business? I'm selling it. I'm going to retire. I don't have any money, but man, maybe I should figure out how to get some money because I would love to own this. Because I'd thought for ages, like like I said before, I love to teach, but I hate teaching in academia. (laughs) I want to teach on my own terms, you know? And I thought, you know, what a cool way, especially with this is a publishing company inside of a religion and specific music to that religion only. What a cool platform to build a teaching sort of school or something to 
rise up composers who then could be published by this company. So I had this whole vision like out in front of me, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to buy this company. So I started looking and talking to investors and I was getting some pretty serious players involved. And then suddenly the last minute, you know, this was eight months of madness and one day to the next and they were telling me I was it. Like, we want you. You're the guy. You're the exact person we would want. And then one day to the next, they sold it to somebody else because that person had cash up front. And I was out. It's like, ah, dang. You know, so about two weeks after that, I was on Ray Edwards' email list. And about two weeks after that, I was kind of in the dumps. You know, and I got this, this email from Ray announcing a three-day live workshop. And I could not stop reading that sales letter. Something about it just rang my bell. It actually, it really pissed me off at first because the headline, I still remember the headline. Do you have the courage to become a million dollar copywriter? Something about the word courage just, just irked me. Like, what do you mean courage? Like, you can't say like the reason I got so upset because I had like lost all of my courage, right? Because my being fired from my teaching position, then thinking I'm getting to get back into music and they, they sell it to somebody else, you know, just like I, I was in this kind of weird spiral. But I kept reading that thing and reading that thing to the point where I couldn't not go. I had to go to this thing, but it was $5,000. I didn't have an extra $5,000. So I, convinced my boss brother-in-law to buy me a ticket and I'd pay him back because <laughs> it was going to help the company. I was, you know, going to, and so I went and I said to myself, I'm not going to say anything about music. I'm not even going to tell people I'm a composer. I'm just going to go in there and learn about copywriting and be a copywriter. Well, within the first 30 minutes of the first day, Ray, uh, it's a room of 12 students. He only, only accepted 12 people, Ray and his assistant. And he tells a story about Beethoven and gets some of the details wrong. <laughs> so how can I keep my mouth shut? I uh, <laughs> couldn't do it. I had to, <laughs> had to speak up. And then it all came out, you know. <laughs> but I'm glad I did because it really caught his attention. And about 10 minutes later, because you know, he's telling the story about his deafness and like if Beethoven could do all these great things being deaf. I mean, this, the sky's the limit for all of you. But he you know, mentioned some wrong things. About it. I said, no, 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 no. It's the Heilige Gestalt Testament. It was 1802, not 1805. All these, you know, stupid music nerd kind of things that I can't resist. This is catnip to me. I, you know, give me an opus number and I, I'll go berserk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so about 10 minutes later, he's like, to the whole class, if I was a composer getting into copywriting and I was trying to sell my services, I would say things like, I'll write you symphonies of copy and overtures of, you know, he just went, he just kind of went on a riff with this. And I'm like, that's allowed. You can say that kind of thing. Like it just never occurred to me that I could put the two together. And by the end of that first day, he was talking about uh, um, the idea of a product launch. Like, what is a big product launch? You see these big launches happen in online marketing. And they really are like putting an opera together. There, there's so many pieces. And I just finished a launch with a friend last week. And <laughs> I mean, it's just him and me and his designer. Yet it's so much work. There's so many pieces to the puzzle. It is very operatic. And so I made this comment about that. And he's like... That is a very interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about a launch like that. There's something unique in that. You got to keep going with it. So anyway, I got on his radar and <clears throat> I joined his mastermind and he started sending me some clients that he didn't want to write for. I would write for him and they were working out. And so eventually he said, hey, why don't you just come write for me? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did. He hired me and I, uh, at first it was freelance and then I was full-time and then COVID happened. And so it kind of went back to a part freelance part, you know, weird kind of thing because COVID did lots of weird things to everybody. Um, but yeah, for nearly, for nearly two years, I wrote just about every daily email. Wow. Really? Most of the sales pages, not all, most. And, you know, a good portion of 
content in some of the big courses. It's like a, he had me, he had this really big copywriting course called the Copywriting Academy, which he still has, but we wanted to turn it into a big certification program. So he's like, hey, you've got curriculum experience. Let's figure out how to turn this into like a piece of curriculum. Like, can we make this a serious thing? Mm-hmm. And so we did. We turned it into a 12-month like coaching mastermind kind of thing. And I rewrote the entire curriculum, you know, based on his material, based on his method of copywriting. But I turned it into a big 12-month program. I did all the video recording. I did did the whole thing, and I ran the coaching program for him. Turns out our styles are very similar. Um, we have the same kind of sense of humor. We like the same kind of music. He was a radio disc jockey, and I'm way into classic rock and stuff. And he and I, He and I could go on a Pink Floyd rampage for weeks, you know, and come out comfortably numb. Sorry, that was a Pink Floyd joke, if anybody likes Pink Floyd. <laughs> Just another brick in the wall. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's that's how I went with Ray. And he connected with me with a whole bunch of other people. And I was able to work with him on some big launches for some of our, our clients that hired us. People who I'm not actually allowed to tell you their names because I'm under non-disclosures, but... You would know their names. They're very big internet marketing people, and they had hired Ray and his team to write their copy. And so I wrote some of those and coached some of those and copy chiefed some of those. And now I've been out on my own for the last two years or so. And right when the pandemic started, I launched my own little tiny music teaching business online. It's been kind of a side hustle because my main thing has been freelance copywriting for the last couple of years. But that has been so much fun because, like I said before, I'm teaching on my own terms. Mm-hmm. It's also still like in this closed, like inside of this one religion, all about sacred music and how to write for our church services and so on. And I'm having an absolute blast and wanting to turn that into something bigger uh, and possibly even transition out of being the do done for you copywriter and be more of an offer creator. You know, I don't mind being a partner in an offer creation and and I write the copy. That's my part of the partnership. But I'm at the point where it's like, I'd rather have more ownership than one and done freelance projects. If you know what I mean? Anyway, so that's just my story where I've been and what I'm doing now. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that like writing copy for a a major launch is, is similar to writing an opera. And now that you mention it, and I can see how that would be similar because there's so many moving pieces, so many. It's just a huge production. It is. If, if you do it. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is like you're not a trumpet player, which <laughs> we won't hold against you. Hold on a second. When I took brass methods in college. Oh, that doesn't count. But Sorry. hold on. No, it doesn't. My favorite instrument was I was the best at the trumpet. It doesn't I, count. The stupid tuba and the trump I couldn't do those, but the trumpet. I know it doesn't. Okay, count. yeah, we're we're really glad to hear that. <laughs> but, but one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because I'm always uh, I want to expose people that listen to this show to you know alt careers because we mm. always like we always get into this track. I have to make my living playing trumpet, right? Trumpet or nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things that. Uh, uh, an education or the discipline of getting good at trumpet that can translate to many things. Oh yes, and like if you if you can have the discipline to play a trumpet really at a really high level, all right, even at a moderate level, that takes a lot of work. That's so and, true. And even though there's there's scarcity with the actual jobs playing trumpet, there are so many ways that the discipline that you develop. And like those those muscles, for lack of a better term, that you just work up over time, they can yeah. translate into success. And I thought I I just think that copywriting would be it seems like a natural thing for a musician to just transition seamlessly into it. I think it is. I mean, you know, I I talk to some people about copywriting, and I tell my musical formulas, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" Because that's that's like how I I see everything through the lens of music. That's just how I am. And so I kind of learned from the pros through their books and their courses and and personal mentors, but it always filtered through musical terminology to me. 
And so lately I've been turning it back around into other musical terminology that just about anybody can understand. But boy, it's such a pleasure to get with a person who is musically experienced, like you're talking about. I think musicians are the perfect mixture to make really good copywriters and marketers in general, because musicians have to sell. We have to get butts in seats. I don't care if you're a trumpet player, an opera composer, a singer, uh, a sousaphone, marching band person, like whatever it is, you've got to sell yourself. You learn about auditions and practicing and the discipline and there's the craft and the inspiration and the passion. Like you need all of that stuff in marketing and in copywriting. And you don't necessarily have to be the one writing the words, but like just understanding a good marketing campaign, musicians have such an edge. We've done so many of those kinds of things for our whole lives. And if you can see that, if you can connect the dots and see them, it's like, oh, okay, I can do that. And by having a tool like copywriting in your belt, even if you're trying to become a gigging trumpet player, you can stand out head and shoulders over your competitors by how you position yourself on social media and online and your website because you know the art of copywriting in addition to your playing. That's humongous. It is a tremendous advantage. And I can say that just this podcast has taken a completely different turn in the last few years since I've been studying people like Ben Suttle. Mm. I, I studied Ben Settle probably more than anybody. I decided, I, I decided I'm going to have one person mm. that I learn from. Because mm-hmm. if you learn from, if you try to learn from everybody, then you're just going to end up confused. I'm just, I, I like Ben. I resonate with him, and he's my guy. So yeah, that, love- that that was my decision. But um, the the whole uh, the, this podcast has taken a completely different flavor over the over the years, as I have studied marketing. And yeah. copywriting and being a, a personal per, personal brand for lack of a better term yeah. or you know you, you're you're telling a story all the time all the time all the time even when you're on stage with no words and you're playing with a jazz trio and you're the trumpet player you are telling a story musicians are storytellers and that is boy if you can translate that into your how you sell yourself and your personality brand and your business huge it's huge yeah. and you and you look at the the musicians that are really doing really well and you see a lot in common they you know really how do. To, you know how to they know how to sell a story they're telling a yeah. story and they know how to sell it you know for the longest it's interesting talking to you because for the last year or so i've been kicking around the idea of doing more of this kind of thing like i have not focused on helping musicians necessarily um cuz i've been kind of jaded you know and i'm doing my sure. own thing Hearing you talk and hearing some friends who we have similar conversations, it's like, you know, there's probably a big need. I think, though, it takes a little bit of convincing, right? Because not every musician is going to go, oh, I got to go learn copywriting. No, no, nobody's in their practice room, you know, playing a Louis Armstrong lick thinking, and now I'm going to go study Ben's subtle copywriting methods. But when they think, dang, I wish I could make some more money. How can I make some more money? Uh, I, I only have a few gigs, but I got to feed my children. Well, that's when copywriting can come in handy, either for yourself or as a side gig. Because you know what? I, I can go on a trip with my family and still write you know, 10 emails for a client and bring in a couple thousand bucks for those 10 emails. I don't need to be at my desk to do that. And so having... I mean, honestly, I look at my copywriting business now as supporting my up and coming music business because my real heart is in my music business, but I'm good enough at copywriting that I'm making money for my family and recovering our basis and it's supporting what I'm doing in my music business. It wouldn't take much for a lot of musicians to get to a similar point. You'll have to forgive me if I've missed this, but what is your new music business? So my, my thing is it's called Latter-day Musiversity. So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we have a certain flavor of music. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and all that kind of stuff. That's great, but in our regular Sunday services, not everybody gets to have the Tabernacle Choir because nobody does. That's a separate thing, but we all kind of have that in our mind. 
But there's a ton of people out there who want to learn to write good music for our Sunday services. There's simply nobody out there helping them. And I've complained about this for years and years and years. And I've also complained and complained up and down about the people trying to write good LDS church music, and most of them stink. Now, I I love their efforts and their intentions are fantastic, but the more I saw this and was kind of disgusted by it, the more I realized, hey, there's an opportunity there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things you start to learn to do as a copywriter. You look for problems. Oh, I see a problem, and actually, I've got a solution for it. Here I am, ready-made. Got all the education you need. Got all the experience you need. I'm super passionate about the subject material. I could do it forever and not get tired of it. And I love these people who want to do it. Why not start something? So when the pandemic happened, I, I had a little list of about 600 LDS people who were interested in music. And I just threw out an, an email. You know, I'm thinking about putting together a live workshop to learn how to write a hymn. Would that interest anybody? Mm-hmm. I, I honestly didn't know if it would. Um, so why I send the email? Let's see. And about 30 people responded and 25 of them signed up for a $500 workshop. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> so we did the workshop and you know, it was a big learning curve. I'd never taught a class on Zoom like that. And can I actually get people results in eight weeks on a Zoom class? And it, it was a challenge, but I couldn't stop. So now I've been doing those ever since and I'm turning it into digital products and I have a membership. And so that's, that's my side music business that I'm. So right now copywriting is doing most of the paying most of the bills and music is not. And I'm trying to, you know, swap it because although I love copywriting, I would much creating the offers and, and doing that myself. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. Okay. So eventually the music business, the goal is to have that be the lion's share of the, the revenue. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be sad though if I was teaching copywriting to people. Okay. Like you know how Ben Ben settles thing now is he doesn't take any freelance clients. He is writing copy for his own business. He's he's right. his own client. Yes. Like I love I love that, and I would, and I I get really passionate when I teach copywriting. I'm certainly passionate when I write for my clients, especially if they do stuff that I like. Like my client that we launched this thing last week, he's a he's an online piano instructor. We had a fantastic launch. It did more than double my annual salary of when I was a professor in seven wow. in seven days. So I was like, wow. whoa, that's I, awesome, man! Music professors can can't make that. <laughs> and we two two musicians selling a, a digital piano course online, and so I want to be involved with like helping people do that. If I can teach people who are trying to realize their dream, uh, I would love to be teaching some of that copy. I get very passionate as a teacher about that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily want to be copywriter for hire forever. That's, that's the thing I'm trying to kind of work my way out of. Okay. Uh, What was the name of this? That's the latter day uh, learniversity. What is it? Museiversity. Latter day university. Okay. Well, we just have a couple of minutes because we both have engagements beyond this conversation. Uh, But you you did mention the five-point formula of writing copy, and it uses the acronym MUSIC. I was wondering, if just before we sign off, if you could briefly go over these five points. Absolutely. M stands for misery. You got to start where people are hurting. And But misery, see, this is the one that takes the most explanation. Misery comes in a whole different array of colors. You know, if I'm serving a, a, a client who's in cryptocurrency, their clients have a different kind of pain than an Alzheimer's family, a family who has a, someone who's struggling with Alzheimer's or a family who's struggling with debt. Like, But you have to find the misery. So the misery might be I'm bored or the misery might be I'm sick of listening to the same music all the time or the misery could be I just got fired. Now what do I do? You know, it's all sorts of miseries, but you got to start with that. Where does it hurt um, and really understand it? I sit right in front of the trumpet section in the orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm in the double bass section. My there dad actually go. started here in Utah about 12 years ago and I'm the associate conductor and I play in the double bass section. Yes. I keep the trumpets on the other side of the room from (laughs) (laughs) anyway. So M is for his misery. Find their, their urgent problem. 
the U stands for unique promise. What is it that I can legitimately promise you, but that's unique, that you haven't heard of a way of solving this quite like this before? Unique promise. The, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example of my, my music classes after I give you this acronym um, definition. S is sure solution. You've got to be able to prove that you can deliver on the unique promise. Otherwise, nobody's going to give you the time of day. That's the S. The I, and the I is where a lot of copywriting formulas miss the point. The I is the ideal world. You have to be able to tie in what you're offering people into their ideal world. You have to get in their mind and see what does Oz look like for that Dorothy. Once she has her and her little dog too have gone through, you know, the yellow brick road, what does it look like to them when they get to Oz, their ideal world? And that ties into the emotions, which ties back into the misery. You've got to connect the misery to the ideal world. Mm. And the C at the end is a two-part thing. First, you have to call them to adventure. Come with me. Join me. They have to take action. You call them to action. And you do so by showing them a clear path to paradise. That's the other C, clear path to paradise. So for example, I have this little class that I teach. It's an eight-week live workshop called Primary Songwriting School. In our church, we call children's songs primary songs because the, the group of kids, we call them the primary. Which sure. is eight, Got it. Yeah, that makes three sense. Three to 11 or something like that. Um, so a lot of these people want to learn to write primary songs because it's a tender age where we're trying to teach principles of the gospel that they can learn and have a foundation. So <clears throat> in eight, I promise them, I, I know that they have a certain pain. Their, their misery is, and these are mostly women over 40 who are probably empty nesters or close to it and are, are grandmothers. Their misery is the thought that they're going to die and their children and grandchildren will forget that they had a testimony of the gospel, that they believed. They're so afraid that they're not going to pass on what they have learned to their okay. children. Yes, got it. That's their misery, the potential yes. misery. They may not be feeling the pain of that now, some of them are, but the potential of misery, mm-hmm. it's really scary to many of them. I've, I've had these calls where they're like breaking down in tears talking to me about this. Um, which is why I, live, I love live workshops because you get to know the people and that, that's second to none. Then I make them a unique promise. I tell them, walk in with a blank page and in eight weeks, you're going to walk out with a finished, perfectly crafted primary song and I'm going to typeset it for you and so it's going to look published ready that you can share with anyone and you can sing with your grandchildren. And I know I can deliver on that because I've done it again and again and again and again. And one of the free bonuses is I typeset your song. Then the, the S, the sure solution. Well, I've done this so many times. I'm, an, I'm a big shot, so-called composer who's done blah, dee, dee, blah, dee, blah, dee, blah. And I've got a whole bunch of students who've already gone through the course and they have success. Look, here's their song. And I tell their story and I play their song. And so that, that's, there's a lot of proof. And then I, the ideal world, just imagine yourself three months from now. It's the holiday season. You travel to see your grandkids. You bring with you this song you wrote for them. And together around the piano, you teach them your testimony song. What is that going to feel like? Hmm. This hmm. is where we connect right. the misery right. to the promise. Mm-hmm. That's the magic right there. And then the call to adventure. Come and join me. It's only $7.95 for eight weeks. What would that cost you if you signed up for a university course? A lot more, and you're going to get a bunch more than you would get in one university course. Plus, you're going to keep all the recordings. Plus, I'm going to typeset it for you. Plus, you can ask me all your questions. You know, so I call them to the adventure and I show them I'm going to do this in week one, this in week two, this in week three, so they can see the whole thing out before them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing is, one, I have a 100% success rate in that course. Not a single person has not completed that and finished a beautiful primary song at the end of it. Yeah, college courses cost way more than seven dollars and ninety five cents. Not seven dollars and ninety seven hundred dollars and oh. seven hundred dollars. <laughs> Got it. Got it. But even well, then, I mean, to sign up for a three credit 
course for one semester, most places would be over a thousand dollars. So, you know, one course we meet twice a week. This is James Newcomb. We've had Dr. Douglas Pugh, but he just goes by Doug. You can find him on the web at musicofcopywriting.com. I, I didn't know what to expect with this interview, but I knew that when you get Ben Settle to sing your praises to any degree, he's going to be worth talking to. So um, I'm, I'm really glad that this worked out. We might be hearing more from Doug in the future. We'll just have to see. But for now, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode and will be in your earballs soon. <laughs> <laughs>